Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 63 of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This episode is with Sarah Porkolov, and if I sound excited, it's because I am, because it's such a damn good interview. It just, every moment is quotable and relevant to making awesome contemporary theater, and Sarah Porkolov, you're my hero, and thank you for being on my podcast. Uh, we talk about a couple of upcoming projects for Sarah. She's directing Do It For Amma which is going to be opening at Annex Theater February 2nd, running through the 17th, Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. You can get your tickets at annextheater.org. Also check out all their great Facebook events and images. Uh, that's going to be a great show. Also, also, what I'm really excited about is Dragon Lady, I'm Going to Kill You, which is Sarah's solo show, which has been selected for the Seattle Fringe Festival. That's going to be running February 25th, March 3rd, 4th, and 5th in the TPS studio. More information at sarahporkalob.com. You're really going to enjoy this interview, but before we get to it, I have to thank our sponsor for this episode, which is the Libertinis! I feel like there should be glitter and jazz hands in your mind as I'm saying that. Um, also participating in the Seattle Fringe Festival with Uncle Siegel. Inside the Libertini's Uncle Siegel at Seattle Fringe Fest and stuck in a cherry orchard with no way back to the sea, three Siegel sisters insist on a life of propriety, adventure, and toil amidst endless cherry pits and the bleak antics of the humans below. But when the orchard of their childhood changes right beneath their webbed feet, will Katya, Vera, and Sasha summon the courage to fly? After a smash run of Uncle Siegel at the Pocket Theatre, Tootsie Spangles, Hattie Hellcat, and Woody Sticks bring you a combination love letter and ransom note to everyone's favorite turn-of-the-century Russian poet, Anton Chekhov. Now with even more broken hearts, aching souls, and chirpy puns, all wings considered, Uncle Siegel is a blithe reminder that every birdie hurts. Uncle Siegel will fly at the Seattle Fringe Fest on February 26th, 27th, March 4th and 5th at 9pm in the Center House Theatre, the basement of the Seattle Center Armory. Buy tickets, enjoy sweet gifts or gifs, depending on how you pronounce that, and keep abreast of everything these girls are up to on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and at www.thelibertinis.com. I hope you enjoyed that promo for the Libertinis, our sponsor for this episode, and for Uncle Siegel, which Alina and I saw uh, when it was at the Pocket Theater, and it was absolutely amazing, uh, and you you do need to check it out. You should check out all of the Seattle Fringe Festival stuff, because I can't wait to see what all these amazing artists in Seattle have to offer us. Are you excited? I am excited about the Seattle Fringe Festival. Also, I forgot to mention another exciting thing that Sarah Porkalob has been commissioned to do. is going to be at the Pocket Theater, and she is the first recipient of the Pocket Theater's Pocket Change Grant. Her new solo show titled Bing and Popo Demon Hunters will be going up in June and will run for a month. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that as that comes to fruition. Sarah Porkalov, I love you. The Libertinis, I love you too. Enjoy episode 63! 
am thrilled and invigorated to be in the presence of Sarah Pokerlov. Thank you for being on the podcast. We have so much to talk about today. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> I believe the first time I saw you perform was part of 1448 and you were singing <laughs> Rehab with a mustache and a cowboy hat. Is this correct? <laughs> that's, that's correct. Yes. My memory is like a steel, a steel trap, a very, a very, a leopard print steel trap that is a very quirky place. But then subsequently I've seen you in Bunnies and you were absolutely haunting in that, that solo in the jail. Ah, and so I'm so glad because you're doing everything basically. And so we're going to talk about everything. Great. Yes. Yes, we are. Uh, let's talk about, let's go, let's take it way back okay. um, to childhood. Are you, were you you know, putting on theater in your backyard? Were you part of children's theater? Like, where did this initial spark of uh, passion for performance come from for you personally? For sure. Uh, I'd have to say the first um, brush that I've had with performance is really just my family. Uh, I'm Filipino, Chinese, Hawaiian, and I grew up in a household where it wasn't just my mother and I, but it was my mom, my aunties, my uncles, my grandma specifically. And if you know any other Filipinos, you know that like we like to get down with karaoke. So <laughs> you come over to my house even now for any holiday, and my family will randomly just like burst down to three-part harmonies. So I grew up in an environment where singing and joking and playing around with each other was just how we interacted. And being the firstborn grandchild and also being the youngest, like the next oldest I think was my Auntie Lily in the house, and she was like nine years old when I was born, a lot of the attention was focused on me being the youngest person and we would watch Disney movies. There was a time I think when I was like three watching Fiddler on the Roof, Little Shop of Horrors and Grease. I think it was like public television musical special week right, right. and just being enthralled and completely captivated. But then to watch my aunts and my mom and my grandmother take on these performance aspects just in our everyday life was a huge thing for me growing up. Absolutely. So, coming out of childhood, growing up, in high school, were you a total theater, theater kid, or not, or maybe, or doing your own thing? Yeah, I'd say I was, I was a mixture. I mean, I grew up, my mom is my biological mother, but she's a lesbian, so my other mom, Tina, is a musician, so she's a huge singer. So more than anything in high school, I was in choir and jazz band. I played the bass guitar, so I was playing bass since I was like 13 years old. Um, but I was doing theater when I could. Uh, I think, though, even then, I was dissatisfied with the projects that were happening in my high school. I Fanta grew up in a... I mean, not fantastic, but so great that you had that awareness at such oh, an early age. Yeah, I grew up in Bremerton, which is uh, a small town on the peninsula in Kitsap County. It's a Navy town, so it's like a lot of conservative families. A huge Filipino community, but also kind of conservative, a lot of Catholics. And I remember doing the Laramie Project in high school and having kids protest the fact that we were doing the show and there were people who were writing articles about it and a local newspaper saying that we were supporting like a gay lifestyle and I was just like who the fuck cares yeah we are we're speaking out against injustice so I was I was mostly a musical person in high school because I was dissatisfied with the things we were doing on stage <laughs> right are there any highlights from that time other than the Laramie Project? Any positive experiences from that time performing? I mean, not really. I was in... Honesty, I love it. I was in The Crucible, but I was cast in the role of Tituba, and 
the director said it was because I was the only one who could play it, but I knew it was because I was the only brown person in the show. That's why they cast me as Tituba. Um, yeah, I, I loved the people. There were people, my classmates, my teachers, who were very kind, um, but it, it was definitely lacking. More than anything, I learned what I didn't want to do in high school. It lit a fire under your ass. Oh, for sure. Always. That fire's still burning. My ass is hot right now. <laughs> that is... <laughs> Let's get a bumper sticker right now. My ass is hot right now. Bam. <laughs> Where did you start? Did you... Uh, so coming out of high school, uh-huh. what was the path for you? Were you like, I'm going to solve all these injustices right now, I need, or I need more training, or I don't exactly know what I want to do? You know... I knew that I was going, I I had this weird vague idea that I was going to be a Broadway superstar, but then also minor in like English lit and be an English lit teacher if all else failed. It seems to be kind of what I've noticed, a pattern for young women who are artistically inclined, where it's like, great, if I can't be a performer, then literature. And I think that that's indicative of a society that is extremely gendered, where it's like, I can't want to be a performer and then be a mechanical engineer. It's I have to be involved in a specific area of study that deals more with what is associated with women's studies. I'm doing finger quotes right here. Um, So I knew that I wanted to go to a performing arts school, and I ended up at Cornish College of the Arts. I thought I wanted to go across the country, but I realized at 18 years old that that was not smart and also not coming from a wealthy family knowing I had to pay my way through school it would be better to stay in a location in which I had connections and a place that I had an affinity with so I wouldn't be a lost person doing a program that I knew nothing nothing at all about right and uh I went to Cornish and my freshman year was magical and beautiful it was like oh wow with all these other people who think like me about the arts and then I was like sophomore year was like oh oh god where are all the colored people? <laughs> and I realized that there were a lot of things that I hadn't been taught that I wasn't aware of in high school about the world of theater, the business of theater, and the business of being a woman of color in theater. And so sophomore year, there was a huge drastic shift in how I looked at my education and what I wanted it to be a vehicle for. How did you? How did that shift um, manifest itself both physically and then emotionally and then how you took action the path going forth from that oh for sure uh sophomore year i didn't receive as much financial aid as i thought i would get and i had to leave school at the end of my first semester because Mm. i didn't have enough money to pay for second semester it was very uh upsetting and depressing more than anything i felt that i had failed my family um kind of the first one in my family to go to a specialized program following my passion not you know my parents weren't like go be a nurse go be a lawyer they were like you want to perform great we're here to support you do whatever you want so I felt that I had failed them in that way and I removed myself from the theater world and I was working three different jobs at the time to like save up money to go back to school and my time away from theater helped me put things into perspective a little bit more and not just from theater but from the institution that I was a part of I moved from high school to college right away with no time in between to really kind of take stock of my life as a young adult and I came back with a different class a different set of people that I had originally started out with so I I had already felt kind of removed from them Mm. but I was also like yeah I'm not here to fuck around I'm gonna put my nose to the grind and I'm gonna take care of my shit 
Like, I would love to party the way that I did freshman year. <laughs> like, I'd love to, like, smoke weed all day, but I'm trying to, like, memorize my lines tonight. And how it kind of manifested physically is I don't think I slept much. Uh, I had to work, work study, and then a part-time job to pay for myself. And then emotionally, I I was very angry a lot of the time. And it, it, felt, it felt, felt great. <laughs> I still am. I think growing up as a woman as well, being encouraged through all of these social constructs to be a nurturing, emotionally literate human being was wonderful, but it also was, it was incredibly restrictive that as a woman, I wasn't allowed to be angry, that if I was angry, I was hysterical, and therefore that invalidated my emotions. And that's really interesting to deal with on your day-to-day basis. Not just in confrontations, but like sitting there on the bus and having somebody like push against you and not say anything, having it be a man, for example. And then if you like give him a look, he shoots you this look. It's all of these things that women have to internalize day to day. And I came back sophomore year and I was like, fuck that shit. I'm mad. And I applied that to the work that I was doing. And that carried me through junior year and through senior year as well. I hope that answers your question. That's so good. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you're seeing my reaction of clenching my fists and roaring, and uh, an audio medium doesn't necessarily lend itself well to communicating that to the listeners, but I just, I'm finding that anger rising up a lot for me personally in this in this last year, and it's it's a battleground walking, just walking through, not even being a performer, but walking through day-to-day just as a woman on the commute walking from place to place and you're always guarded and you want to be strong but if you're too assertive you're labeled as difficult or hysterical and a man a man saying the same things yeah is assertive yeah and it just it makes my head and my heart hurt but that anger is good and it guides you and it and it it drives you forward the constant policing of a woman's actions and words and appearance is something that I seek to deconstruct every fucking day. Um, and it's it's interesting to put that into perspective in a theater world as well. Mm. I had a roommate growing up where we would talk about the things we would experience in these different rehearsal processes. And he would always say, I don't want to burn any bridges with these people. And I was like, they're doing you wrong, man. And he's like, well, professionally, I don't want to do this and I don't want to do this. And I came to realize for myself that if I'm staying true to my artistic moral principles and I am communicative and yes, confrontational at times and assertive, and if people can't handle that, then those aren't the people that I want to work with. Those aren't the people that I should invest my time, my emotional, mental, and physical energy into. And it's hard being an artist just coming into the real world because we're told to connect and network. It's like, you don't want to burn those bridges. I'm all about burning those fucking bridges. I'm on a boat. Okay? I'm on a boat. Sailing towards the horizon of fourth wave feminism in the arts. And if people can't handle that, then I don't need those people. It's just like, let it go. Yeah. Let them fly in the wind. It's a windy day. I'm fine. And it's hard, though, because you can say that, but to instill that into your brain and make it a part of your daily process is constant vigilance, right? It's that Harry Potter. It's that guy in Harry Potter who's like, constant vigilance. I'm like, yeah, man, Mad-Eye Moody, I feel you always, every day. And once you're able to do that, it means that intense thoughtfulness, deliberation, specificity must be paid. 
And it's hard work. But once it becomes a part of your everyday practice, at least for me, I'm like, oh, great. There's no going back. Why would I go back to right. thinking that I have to constantly police what I say to people to be worried about what I look like walking down the street? Like, I got more important things to do. Dragon Lady. Dragon Lady. I know, I know. That's where I was going. You're reading my mind. Sorry. Let's talk about your solo show, Dragon Lady, I'm Going to Kill You. <laughs> yeah. And so it premiered as part of Bumbershoot. Is that correct? So Dragon Lady. Okay. I hesitate calling them one and two. I don't okay. want people to think they can't see the second installment without having seen the first. That's crazy. So Dragon Lady, my first solo show, um, premiered in February of last year as part of Locally Grown's Solo Performance Festival, um, produced and headed by one of my favorite directors in town, David Gassner. And it premiered for the first time in its full-length form there, was remounted at Theater Off Jackson's Solo Performance Festival, was invited to be part of Bumbershoot, and then was performed again at The Pocket in November, and then again <laughs> at Primavera Arts Center through React Theater Company, um, this last December. So now, Dragon Lady, I'm gonna kill you is what I'm calling, like, the second chapter of the Dragon Lady saga. <laughs> and that will be as part of the Seattle Fringe Festival. That's correct. Okay, let's take it back, and Woodzik did not do her research well enough <laughs> about the arc of this show, but I want to talk about how it came to be, and then how it uh, transformed over this year and in these different venues. For sure. It started out <clears throat> my senior year um, in a solo performance class I was taking, headed by the fantastically fierce Kira McDonald. <laughs> I yes. say her name with such reverence. <laughs> and it was a semester-long class, and how it was structured is every week we would receive a different prompt. And according to this prompt, these rules, these boundaries, we had to create a solo performance piece that was anywhere from like two to five minutes long. At the end of the year, we were encouraged to look at all of these projects we had created and elaborate on them or create something completely new with our new skill set to showcase at the end of the year solo performance showcase. And I met with my teacher and we, we had talked about some stuff and I had these ideas that were just kind of like tepid and I wasn't very excited about them. And I was, had also reached my peak level of anger in my senior year. I was like, ugh, I'm angry every day. <laughs> and, so, and so we had this super real talk about the things I was experiencing in the institution, my fears and doubts about what I wanted my life to look like after Cornish. And out of this conversation, my prompt was born. I had done a family argument as one of the prompts earlier in the semester. You basically had to play three people, stage an argument, but you couldn't use any props and you really couldn't move. So you just had to like stand there and using vocal and physical specificity, switch between your characters. And I created a car conversation based on an argument that my family had after they had seen me in Pride and Prejudice at Cornish. <laughs> I played Elizabeth Bennett and my grandmother started out the conversation with, uh, you know, baby, that was really good. You look so beautiful, like a doll. But I really had no idea what you were saying the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, that started an argument. And it was one of my favorite prompts. And Dragon Lady was created. I was playing my grandmother in kind of this 10-minute sketch, like stand-up comedy piece, directly addressing the audience as if they were me. 
and I elaborated on that through the summer of that year so that it was like a 15 to 20 minute piece. I would perform it at um, kind of like openings for bigger things like here's an opening piece for this cabaret or an opening piece for this burlesque show. And when David Gassner approached me in December of 2014, he had heard about it and he said, if you turn this into a full length piece, and people had been telling me this months, then I will give you a slot. And I said, duh, okay, great. And so I did. <laughs> and how I wrote the thing was so bizarre. I don't consider myself a playwright. Like it's very difficult if somebody were, here's your prompt, write this thing. And it's completely like out of my own experience. I just get so anxious about it. I want to be like socially responsible about what I'm writing and yet entertaining because it's theater. But with Dragon Lady, because it was so close to my heart and my experience, and I knew these people so well, it was as if I was just a channel for the story on paper. Mm. And I had the opportunity to workshop it with Terry Wiegand, uh, who is one of the best solo yes! performers I have yes, ever yes, seen. Yes, 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 yes. yes. And she helped me zhuzh the whole thing. I in, love the word zhuzh. Yes, zhuzh yes, it. The whole thing into a 45-minute piece for Locally Grown. And I did that. It was the first time my family had seen it in its entirety. Oh, what was that like? It was so bizarre, Katie, and hilarious. <laughs> my, my grandmother... <laughs> sitting in the audience you know it's at new city and so we're really close to each other she's sitting like back row center kind of like hiding behind people sitting next to my mom and i'm doing the show and she's like oh my god why is she telling everybody my secrets (laughs) and then she's like it did not happen that way i mean yeah it kind of did oh yeah that is why is she telling everyone these things but at the end of it i think they were really moved and touched and it felt really special. Like there was a, there were multiple realities happening at the same time. Not only was I myself playing these characters, but those characters were in the audience. My audience as a whole was a character in the piece. And it was, it's the feeling that I wish I could have with every single thing that I did, not just all of my solo work. Um, I wish I did, but I know it's not like the components for that type of magic coming together are few and far between. And I just feel so lucky to have this piece be that thing for like my artistic process. I hope that answers your question. I got shivers. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. So how, as a performer, how does the piece shift for you doing it in different venues? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it totally does. Oh God, doing it in bumper shoot in that space on the first floor, it was the biggest space I had performed in. And anybody who's seen the show, it's literally me and a chair and some lights and some sound. And I'm a short person, but a big personality. I'm 5'2". Five 5'2 two. <laughs> five two on a good day. And being in that huge black space with an audience for the first time, the majority of them, I had no idea who they were. And they had no idea who I was. And there's a lot of very specific character things that I do physically with gesture and with my mask and how I switch between them. And they're so specific to my face and my body that when I'm in a space, I really have to calibrate how big those are. Mm. I feel better in a smaller space because one, just the visibility of these characters is so much clearer and I can play with the audience and their responses are so much more immediate. In a bigger space, it's harder to judge, but it was great doing it at Bumbershoot because that was the first time where I was like, oh, great. 
the story is appealing to people outside of my immediate acquaintance and outside of my family. All of these people are strangers and they love it. The audience is full, they're laughing. Okay, great, just keep doing the show. <laughs> and it really depends. There's about 10% of it that I improv every night. It's amazing, like, thank the improv gods. They just kind of like drop these lines into my head. Right. And my body and my mind just say yes, and I say it. And then I have to process the response and just keep moving through. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's how it changes. Just calibrating the size of it. Absolutely. And how it lands. So, evolving this second installment mm-hmm. of the piece, was the process any different in terms of generating the work? Or was it still that sort of that channeling kind of thing? Well, I'm still generating it. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Oh my god. Uh, It's difficult. Because what I'm doing... Dragon Lady focused mostly on my grandmother's perspective. I played a total of 12 characters, but my grandmother was the central character. In this next piece, my intention was to expand the narrative of my family's story to my mother and her siblings. Mm. But what I'm discovering is that it is harder to play them as characters on stage. And I think it's because of the space between me and them and me and my grandmother. Age, specifically, my grandmother's older, so who she is as a person, I have a very specific vantage point of her. Whereas my mom, we're closer in age, obviously, and my aunties and my uncles as well. And it's harder to play them as adults, and honestly, it's not that much fun. So I've been playing them as children. I'm writing stories from their childhood, and I'm switching. Often I'll have scenes between just, like, my mom and one of her siblings, and then in two scenes I have basically all of the siblings in one room and then my grandmother and my grandfather. So I'm playing seven people in one scene. And that, I think, is more exciting and kind of where I'm, I'm following this trajectory of playing them as kids and teenagers and seeing where I land. Well, I'm excited to see this piece. Thanks. We want to give people all the all the specifics, and they'll be in the episode description as well, but it opens February 25th. Correct. And also runs March 3rd, 4th, and 5th in the TPS studio space on the first floor of the center house. So check that out. And the best place to get information on that is Sarah Porkalob. Dot com. Dot com. <laughs> Fantastic. Let's switch gears a little bit. You're a busy woman in the theater world because you're also directing right now. Yeah. Because it's not enough to just be generating new work for a solo show. <laughs> Tell me about this project at Annex Theater. Yes. So the play that I'm directing at Annex Theater is entitled Do It for Oma. Oma is the Korean word for mother. It's written by a local playwright, the fabulous Shiyong Yim. Yes! <laughs> she has written this play, which is a ghost detective tragic comedy story about a family, Hannah and Jason, brother and sister, Korean-American, and their mother, Oma, who dies in a mysterious death, and she comes back to haunt her daughter into avenging her. It's modeled after Hamlet, but more entertaining. Oh, do I dare say that? I dare say it. You went there. <laughs> more entertaining. And I have this fabulous cast of eight people and a wonderful production team made up entirely of women. And we open February 2nd. It's the off night, so we'll be performing in conjunction with the on night or main stage show, 12th Story. And you can see that, yep, opening February 2nd, 
closing on the 17th with an industry night on the 15th. More info about, so let's, we'll dig into this a little more, but again, the info is going to be at annextheater.org. We'll link to that in the episode description. How did you come to this project? Um, so I was approached <clears throat> by Annex's artistic director, Pamela Miatov. She approached me about directing the show. She had seen my solo show, and apparently Xiong had heard of me as well through other people, because I, I forget I consider myself a mix of a director, performer, and like theater theorist, but most people know me as a performer. <laughs> so I, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I totally direct, but people forget that I direct. So they approached me about it. <clears throat> she sent me the prompt, the proposal that Xiong had written up when she submitted this play for their new works. And I read it and I was very intrigued. It was hilarious, it was funny, and I wanted but before I said yes, I really wanted to meet Chiang, and I wanted to meet up with Pamela to talk about why I specifically had been approached. Um, whenever I am approached to do race-specific work, I'm always very wary. <clears throat> I need to know the motivations. Like, I, it's difficult because I'm a brown body. I walk out into the world, people see me as a brown female. And no matter what, I can't take those qualifications away. So it's very important to me to understand if people are specifically approaching me just for those things or if they're approaching me for a different reason when it comes to race-specific work. And I wanted to be sure that Xiang was tight and that she was tight with me and that we would make a great team. <laughs> and I met with Pamela and she answered all of my questions and I met with Xiang and I knew that I wanted to do the piece. And in a weird way, <clears throat> I felt that anybody else doing, I, I wouldn't feel right with anybody, I know it sounds kind of weird, but I, I wouldn't feel right with anybody else directing this piece. The themes that it deals with, who it was written by, the place that it's being produced at, um, when it comes to this type of work, new work, and work specifically that deals with people of color, specifically in Seattle, there is an amount of social responsibility and artistic responsibility that a director and a production team and the house has to be held accountable for. And because that's a huge part of my process and that's very, very important to me, I was like, yeah, great. I wanna do it because I don't think anybody else should. Plus it's hilarious and I love She Young and I love Pamela and I love Annex. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I came to it. How did you put this ensemble together? What do you look for <clears throat> in actors when you're directing? For sure. Um, kind of hard to talk about intuition <laughs> absolutely <laughs> that I feel that there are many parts to being an actor but for myself because I can only speak for myself and what I look for as a director is that there's amount of yes technical skill memorizing your lines being able to change beats being able to understand the difference between this tactic and this tactic the overall arc of your objective and your obstacles that's all technical to me but once you've got that down pat and you can put that kind of behind you in your pocket mm -hmm. there's a level of intuition and play and trust and risk that i look for in actors uh it's important for me to bring that to a rehearsal room and with this model specifically, this play and the vibe that we're going for, that's what I look for. Big choices, people having fun. That's like really huge to me. It's like, you gotta have fun. If 
you're not having fun. I'm not having fun with you. So just get out of my face. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I look for. And it's hard because it's like, whoa, how do, you, how do you see that? How do you draw that out of people, that intuition, encourage people to follow that? And it's hard because I feel like sometimes when I watch people acting on stages, I can tell actors who are more um, right-brained <clears throat> and more left-brained, like who is technically executing you can tell that they've done their work, that they are listening, that they're moving with purpose and they're filling up the stage with their presence. And then there are people where it's like, they've done all of that. And they're just there responding honestly, in the moment, spontaneously, really listening. And I'm not valuing one over the other because I think they're both valuable, but I like watching the intuitive people more <laughs> than the technical people. <laughs> It's just more exciting. To yeah, me. I, I I agree absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm. I love that you parsed it out like that because I feel I am a more intuitive performer, and I think sometimes you can butt up against this technical performers or technical directors. Mm-hmm. And so I love that you gave some love to the intuitive performers. Yeah, you got to find the balance because then you go off the extreme. You have people who are playing the emotion and they aren't able to kind of distance themselves at the beginning of a process to look at a character um, objectively. Mm. And so they have all these judgments about the character or these opinions about what the character needs to do and how they need to move and what they think. And then they're so invested in that that their performance on stage is just like a bunch of chaos. And it's compelling because you're kind of like, whoa, they're really feeling stuff. But for me, is it so, that's still distant from this person over here who's executing the same performance every night. Consistently good, getting great reviews. You can hear them. Everything is specific. But those two opposite ends of the spectrum, I'm really interested in finding the balance between those types of actors. And there's a lot of trust that has to be built in a room for that between a director and their cast and the entire production team as a whole to kind of find that sweet spot. And it's hard to find it. I mean, I think that's why people keep doing art. That it's like, yeah, we want to share our stories. We want to do this. But like that moment of magic where you're like in the groove and you're vibing and everybody's just like, whoa, oh my God, what are we doing right now? We're in like in a trance or something. That's really exciting. And it's, it's rare and... I mean, that's why I do solo shows, because I just have to depend on myself and the audience for that. It's contained to, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Can you talk sense. me through your cast for the show? Yes, okay. <clears throat> for the cast, I have Ina Chang, who's playing Oma, Sky Johnson, who's playing Hannah, Christian Thomas, who's playing Jason, Maggie Lee, who's playing Mrs. E, and then Katie Driscoll, who's playing Dre, and then my wonderful chorus, I have Anna Safin, oh god, I hope I'm saying you right, right. Corinne McGinn, and then Laura Ducks. So it's a cast of eight. Yeah. I'm excited to see, I just want to see everything you do forever and ever. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about Emma. Because yeah. you just closed a production with Book It Repertory. Yeah. Tell me how you came, came to that show and what that process was like for you. For sure. Uh, this last summer I was sent an invitation to audition um from book it and the second i got it i was very confused (laughs) i just i was like what do they need to send this to me what is my name right there but i was confused because based on what i knew about book its history of producing jane austen shows 
<clears throat> I hadn't seen them cast people of color. And I say this with a little bit of reservation because I know that they have, but I think and I feel confident to say that people that they have casted are what we would consider white passing, that they would be mixed, but on stage they could pass for somebody who was white or in this time English during the Georgian Regency period. Sure. <clears throat> Taking a lot of liberties here. So I was just confused because then when I went to the audition, I saw my fellow actresses of color. And I was like, oh, what are you guys here for? They're like, we're here to do this. I was like, oh, me too. And then a light bulb went on and I was like, wait a minute. Hmm. All these people of color, what's going on? Knowing what I knew about Emma, I've, I'm a Jane Austen fan and I was always not interested in her. <laughs> she is, out of all of Jane Austen's heroines, I mean, the only one who has money and who doesn't have to get married to figure out her life. I was really drawn to Elizabeth Bennet, Fanny Price, <clears throat> um, Sense and Sensibility sisters because of their financial situation and being a woman during this time, they were incredibly limited as to what their lives looked like, that I was more interested and invested in them. Growing up poor, having to be um, in art school, but working full time to support myself was like, yeah, I could totally identify with that. So I was like, huh, I wonder what's going on here. So I went into audition, and I love the women at Book It, and Carol Roscoe's the director, and she and I have worked together before. <clears throat> and after my callback, they asked me if I had any questions, and I did. And I asked Carol if there was a specific concept that she was going for in regards to race. And I asked this because, like I said earlier, any race-specific or seemingly unspecific choice of putting people of color in a place that you would not normally expect, I am always very wary of. Because what needs to be taken into account is privilege, audience demographic, the objectives and the intention behind the story. Like politically, socially, economically, artistically, all of those things need to be considered. And Carol thought for a moment and she answered in a way that I was like, okay, fantastic. I am totally on with this. I mean, I hadn't even been cast, but I was like, great, if I'm cast, awesome. If I'm not, okay, great, I'll go do something else. And her biggest thing that she said to me is she said that the art that she had been seeing in Seattle was not reflective of the totality of the amount of talent in Seattle. In that, what well, the faces and bodies she was seeing on stage were not representative of what Seattle really had to offer. And in casting of Emma, she was taking a deliberate color-conscious casting rather than colorblind casting, which are two very different things. I could talk to you for a whole other hour about that. And so we did Emma, <clears throat> and the first rehearsal, I walked into the room, and the feeling that you get when you walk into a room that normally would have been all white, basically one room that I, in a sense, didn't belong to, and to see faces of color such a profound feeling and to look at your romantic couple and to see a white woman of privilege and the person who ends up being the perfect match for her being a black actor is a huge thing and what's interesting is it's like you can talk to other people on the street who saw the show and they wouldn't think about that or at least they wouldn't say that that was a factor for them whereas like I go to a show and that's a huge thing if I'm walking down the hallway of TPS and I see a poster of Book It, Emma, 
a picture of Sylvie Davidson and then Sylvester Camara standing behind her as a romantic couple, I am hit with hundreds of years of like post-colonial study, gender theory, race theory, all in my face. And I'm like, what is this show? The significance of that for me as a person of color, I think it would be safe to say, is very different from somebody walking by who was not a person of color. And it was great to do that show because it was an example of somebody, Carol, and then an organization, Book It, addressing a lack of diverse bodies on stage. And that's what I think Seattle could be better at doing. You see it, though. You see Fringe Theater doing it. You see Smaller Houses doing it. SPT right now is doing a production of Amadeus. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that cast? Oh, my God. It's a beautiful rainbow of wonderful Brandon, actors. Keiko, Kathy. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. My friend Kevin Lynn is also in it. It's just, and Tsunam. She, like, yes, these people are finally, I mean, people, like, these organizations <laughs> yep. are really tapping into what Seattle has to offer. And it's good that they're doing that. And they should be doing that. And more theaters should be doing that. I just want there to be like thunderous applause now, but we're thank alone you. in an office. But no, thank you for saying fine. that yeah. so articulately. We don't have an entire other hour, but before we move on to your newly commissioned another solo show, Eep! will you break down for listeners who might not know the difference between colorblind and color conscious casting? For sure. The different definitions so they can move forward and talk. More smartly, that's not the way to say it. More intelligently about mm-hmm. this when they talk about theater. Yes. So people are more familiar with this idea of colorblind casting. I will use, for example, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Again, I'm making a lot of assumptions that everybody out there listening knows William Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet. I'll admit that. So Romeo and Juliet is a play that is commonly produced right now. Shakespeare, uh, Seattle Shakes, does it like every year for their tour. You bring it to schools, people are familiar with this piece of work in specifically this canon. Um, say, for example, that somebody wants to have a colorblind casting of the show, meaning they're going to set it contemporary today's Seattle. So that means that they aren't specifically, they aren't going into this intention being like, we're going to cast the Capulets as all white, and or we're going to cast, you know, the Montagues all black. It's like we're going to look at everybody who comes to audition and regardless of their race or how they look, we're going to cast the best people for the role. On paper, that looks good. In practice and actuality, it's horrible. Because what people don't realize is that when you're casting, in quotes, the best people for the role... What you're saying is that representation of different bodies on stage is actually not a factor of your consideration. Mm. Saying that your colorblind casting is patting yourself on the back, that you're calling in people of color, but not actually going to cast them. So it is a disregard or an unacknowledgement of a team, a director's, an organization's unrealized bias and prejudice in casting in their minds. It's not deliberate. It's very much a band-aid over the issue. It's polishing a turd. Color-conscious casting, (laughs) on the other hand, is very deliberate. It's a solution to a problem. It is when somebody goes 
Like, for example, for Emma, oh, fantastic. These parts in this play, they don't specify a race. We can say, oh, yeah, it happened in the 1800s, and people in England were white. We can say that, and we can be okay with that choice. But the fact is, not everybody in England was white. We could talk about colonialism, but we're not because we don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so then a director goes, fantastic. If a person's race is not a specific factor to the story, then I'm going to deliberately cast people of color. And I'm going to call in actors and actresses of color. And I'm going to deliberately cast these people. And these people were the best people for the role. There's a sense of deliberation and responsibility to color conscious casting than there is to colorblind casting. And it has to do with privilege. Somebody who says, oh yeah, I'm gonna colorblind this because you have the privilege to say so. Your obligations are very different than to somebody who's going, I'm to color consciously cast this. There's a social responsibility there and an artistic responsibility that are very closely tied to one another. People say that those things are separate. Some people don't consider them, but for as a woman of color, those things are inextricably connected. I cannot separate one from the other. I hope that makes sense. That was, I mean... I want that to be printed up and given to all casting directors. Uh, I, from my perspective, thank you for taking the time to really parse that out because I think people don't have clear definitions of each one, and now yeah. they do and because of you. Thanks. And it's and what it comes down to, right, is like the biggest the biggest excuse that I hear from theaters of why they don't do this is one, we don't have the people. I mean, let's just debunk that already because there are the people. You want people? I'm going to send you 30 people. So calm <laughs> down. And then it's like, oh, then it's like, if that's not the issue, what is it about? So it comes down to money. Theater as a business model. Art making as a money making machine. And so it's hard already to talk about art and money together, like the value of art. Right. You think about quantitative and qualitative information. Quantitative, you can parse down by numbers. You can be like, wow, look at this, look at this field of engineering. Look at how it makes us money. Fantastic. Here's the physical value of this thing in our capitalist economic system. You look at art and it's like, whew, how do we take this qualitative information about the benefits of an arts education for developing minds, of using arts as a vehicle for social justice, how do we put that into numbers? And I feel like big theaters don't want to take risks because they're only able to operate based on like donations and patrons. And who are these donators and these patrons? They're mostly rich white people. And so theaters think, I wonder, do they think, man, we can't put colored people on stage? Our rich white pa patrons don't want to see that. It's like, it's a hard place to be in because you want to make money. But then for myself, it's like, God, do I want the money then from these people who only want to see other white people on stage? How, and I wish my vocabulary was more robust in terms of like business and economics and how arts administrations and organizations deal with money. That's kind of my goal for this year. It's just become a little bit more informed to talk about it. Um, the amount of risk, and it's also like, do you care? Do you really care? Because if you cared, you'd do something. We can talk as much as we want about race. We can have these forums. We can have these big meetings at these theaters. But I ain't trying to talk about it. I'm trying to go out and do something about it. You want me to educate you on this? Oh, honey, there are libraries out there about race theory and the performance aesthetic. Like, come on now. Let's do something. 
I ain't got time to waste. I'm trying to, like, live my life. <laughs> I'm trying to work with other people of color. And not just people of color. I mean, this sounds like I hate white people. I don't hate white people. Some of them I do, but not all of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, like, we can talk about it. And we can keep talking about it. But it's so draining on people of color to have to explain where they're coming from. Right. Thank you for taking the time to explain it somewhat. I yeah. really appreciate it, and I'm glad that folks are going to be listening to your words because I, I think so. they're articulate and profound, and I hope they light a fire under other people's Let's asses. get all the booties hot. Let's get all the booties hot. Booty, 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 booty everywhere. <laughs> Tell me about what you're working on next. You've just been commissioned uh, for a new solo show. Ah. Where is this one going to go? Oh, my gosh. So, the tentative title for this new solo show is called Bing and Popo Demon Slayers. <laughs> uh, I like writing about women, specifically young girls and older women and everything in between. The complex relationships between female generations is just a huge part of my life. That's pretty much why I am the way that I am. The women in my family have shaped me dramatically. And I don't see enough stories like that. Uh, and what I'm doing is I'm writing... It's a really kind of... Like, I've told people about it, and I have, like, six pages of it. And people are like, whoa, that kind of sounds like a Miyazaki film, or it sounds like this graphic novel. And the answer is yes. That's the vibe that I'm going for. This little girl, her name is Bing. She's five years old. She's training to be a warrior princess to, like, fight the demon world. And her mentor is this old lady who's like 100 years old, and her name is Popo. And they go on this fantastic mission to rescue Bing's twin sister, who's been like sucked into the spirit realm. And it's this relationship of like these two ladies, like fighting demons, but also like chilling out by the river and fishing and eating like rice and stuff. <laughs> and huge inspiration from my family. I, I mean, people are like, is a dragon lady related? And it, the answer is, Yes, no. In that it doesn't take place in the Dragon Lady world, but definitely influenced by the women in my family, for sure. And I'm really excited because this theater is taking a huge risk on me, but they love my work and they're trusting me to do this thing. And they're basically like, we just want to support you in any way that we can. And I wish I could say their name right now, but the announcement hasn't been made, but it will be made. And that's what I'll be doing this summer. And then also taking Dragon Lady Remounted as many places as I can. Well, 2016 looks like a very bright year for you, and oh I can't God. wait to see what you do next. This is sort of, we're coming down to the end of our time together. Would you yeah. would you mind taking us out with another bit of Dragon Lady? I just <laughs> so loved the little snippets we heard. If you would be willing to do a little a little something to take us out with, I would, I would adore that. Okay, well, here's a preview of Dragon Lady. Uh, I'm going to kill you. Okay. I'll set the scene for you. Uh, my Auntie Lily is crying on the floor. She gets up, and you can tell that she scraped her knee. Something has happened. <clears throat> she comes home. She opens the door. She kicks off her shoes. And she goes, I'm home. She walks through the hallway. Nobody answers. I said I'm home. She walks into the kitchen. You see my grandmother on the phone. Oh, yeah, can you believe it? She wanted me to cover her bingo shift at the hall tonight on last minute. My God, the ball's on this cow. 
my grandmother sees my auntie Lily. Oi! My daughter just walked in. She is crying all over the place. One second. Lily May! Oi! Why are you crying? I don't want to talk about it. Oh my god, she says she doesn't want to talk about it. I will make her talk about it. Call you back in five minutes. Hangs up the phone. Lily May, why are you coming into the house crying, getting dirt all over my clean kitchen? I said I don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it? Oh my god. I'm sorry, Lily May. Why are you crying? What is the matter, baby? What happened to you? You can tell your nana. <laughs> well, sis and Susan went to the McDonald's down the hill, and sis said I could go, so I went down to Susan's trailer, and sis said I could ride on the handlebars of her bike, so I climbed up there, but then Susan came out, and Susan said, I don't want any babies going with us to McDonald's, and she pushed me off the bike, and I fell, and I scraped my knee, see, look right here, Oh no, that looks really bad. It feels really bad. Oh my god. Lily May, you wait right here. I'll be right back. Grandma walks off stage, comes back. She's holding something in her hands. Do you see this, Lily May? I want you to take this golf club, go down to Susan's trailer, and kill her. What? <laughs> kill her, Lily May. But I'm only five years old. I don't care. I'm not going to have any child of mine walking around the streets, unable to defend themselves. If you don't kill her, Lily May, I will kill you. Now here, you hold it. Okay. It feels... It feels kind of good. Yeah? Yeah. I can do this. Yes, you can. I'm a big girl. Yes, you are. Now, you take it, go down to Susan's trailer, you kill her, be home before dinner, okay? Get out of here. Okay, Mom. Hoi, Lily May. Yeah, Mom. When you swing, don't miss. Okay, bye. Love you. Get out of here. Lily leaves. My grandmother picks up the phone to call her friend back. <laughs> that was amazing! <laughs> so that's just a taste <laughs> of oh the next God. piece. I love that. I hope that translates well to yes, podcast. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it does. Thank you so much for being a guest. Yeah, thank Folks, you for having you're going to want to visit sarahporkalab.com for mm. all the news and events coming mm -hmm. up in your mm. very busy theatrical life. <sighs> That's it. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katie.